This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello and welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa Noble. Parisa, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me again, Eric. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to have you. Now, uh, from what I understand, uh, this may be your last episode before you go on maternity leave, or you might have one more after this, but I, this could be the last one, right, before you uh, go into motherhood for a second time. Yes, that's right. It's coming up. So uh, we'll see what happens. Hopefully we can get one more in before it's go time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and if not, I guess I, I need to figure out what, what in the world we're going to do. It's, it's just not going to be the same show uh, for a few weeks without you, but we'll, uh, we'll see, we'll see how, uh, how we can get along. Well, I appreciate that. You guys will be just fine. I have, I have a lot of faith. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good. Well, congratulations on, on that. Thank and uh, kind of bringing this full circle, you know, kids, technology, uh, transformation. Uh, you and I had talked recently about Disney Plus and some of the uh, interesting findings or results that that platform has had uh, in recent uh, months. What what are your what oh, what were your yeah. findings there? They are crushing it over at Disney. Just one in all of the things that they own, they own everything, right? But then also their pivot to a streaming platform has been amazing for their organization. I mean, they just recently put out a statement that they hit 100 million global subscribers. And they've only been out for just a little bit over a year. I think it's been 16 months. So, you know, I I can definitely say my family has Disney Plus. Do you guys have Disney Plus at home? No, we do not. Oh, you're missing out, Eric. It's pretty great. We missed we missed the window at the age of our kids. It, It would have been great five or eight years ago, but they're they're a little bit too old for that now, according to them. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> according to them they're grown right, right what are they exactly. they're eight and how old are uh, they're 11 and 14 so they totally oh, so have it totally all, off they have totally it all off figured out <laughs> especially the 14 year old <laughs> oh yeah didn't we all at 14 we know yeah. the essence of life but i mean it's it's definitely for the little kids but they also have exclusive content on there from like star wars and you have marvel so there's some stuff on there that that would appeal to the 14 year old too, right? You know, yeah. about the Avengers, Iron Man. Okay. Yeah, the only thing of Disney that's really of interest to them is uh, ESPN. You know, since Disney owns ESPN, they're they're super into sports, and that is really what they focus on. So, right. Well, that kind of takes me to the next point. Is just you know, streaming services have completely taken over the television industry, and it's interesting to see how quickly it happened. I mean, just within the past, I feel like five years, even maybe 10, I don't know, maybe 10 years, not even, uh, all of these organizations, all these, uh, networks are starting to branch off and make their own streaming platforms. Like ESPN is separate from Disney plus. You don't have access to ESPN on Disney plus. You have to either get the ESPN app or, uh, or, you know, figure it out on, on the, 
traditional television outlets like Comcast or uh, Dish or whatever your TV subscriber is. So, you know, just seeing how the television industry has evolved so quickly and how much it's impacting other kind of paralleled or I don't know if it's paralleled or a tangent industry like gaming. Uh, gaming is different too now because you're apparently streaming uh, your games rather than having the disc that goes into the PlayStation. I don't know. That's what I'm being told by, uh, you know, my brother-in-law. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true, but apparently streaming is everywhere. It's just a new way to do it. Yeah. It, well, and, and on top of that, you have streaming, watching people streaming, playing video games. So you've got like Twitch and things where people like our kids will watch videos of people playing video games. I'm like, that's bizarre but okay that's that's what, what kids are doing these days <laughs> yeah what is that about i guess that that's the new dream job is being a professional video gamer yeah maybe. who knows it could be and it in our house anyway you know none of there's four of us in the house and uh none of us except for my wife actually watch tv so like i've never watched tv so i'm, I'm sort of an anomaly to begin with because i i've always just just disliked watching tv it just doesn't appeal to me um but um, our kids used to, and now they just, everything's on YouTube. Everything they watch is, yeah. is YouTube now. And my wife's the only one that actually watches regular TV, the news or whatever. So right. interesting. it's interesting. Cause I mean, the live TV aspect, I mean, that's really what these big television distributors like Comcast or like Xfinity, et cetera. That's what they're hanging on to is the live events. It's the news and the sports. Other than that, you have on-demand content anywhere you go you could just open your browser or you could download the apps you could do all these things and i it made me think about the the erp digital transformation space because it's kind of that on-premise versus cloud relationship is everything is migrating to the cloud i don't know if we're there to the extent that we are there with streaming services um you know everything it seems to be streaming i feel like we're coming up on the brink of that's where television and content is going to live is on streaming platforms. I don't know if we're fully living on cloud platforms in the ERP industry. I don't know. What do you think? Where are we at on, you know, relative to streaming? Are we fully cloud yet or does on-premise still have a hold on, on the industry a little bit? Yeah. So most of the industry has gone uh, cloud, but there's, I mean, there's always some hanger oners or whatever hanger ons. Is that what they're called? Uh, whatever the word is for people that are slow to change uh, the, the ones that just really like on-prem or they like, you know, they like the idea of having their own it infrastructure and, you know, ho hosting that all themselves. Um, but, you know, I think most of the, uh, most of the industry is going to cloud for sure. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, everything is evolving. We're kind of in that new, new age of, of technology. I feel like in the, 2000s 2010 it turned into the connectivity phase where you know the internet just came out facebook social media and then now it's how can we ramp it up a little bit and make everything be you know kind of hands-free kind of yeah. no no wires no anything um and you just kind of go to the cloud yeah yeah interesting crazy stuff we're in an interesting time that's for sure so it's it's Cool to see it also play out within our industry when it comes to transformations and, you know, what our clients are seeing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of what our, what our clients are seeing, we're going to have uh, a couple of guests on today that'll uh, help us unpack some, some themes relevant to digital transformation today. Um, we're going to have uh, Dave Beldick on the show again. He was on a, a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago, 
And this time we're going to have him on. He's, he's from the third stage team and he's going to be on talking about how to optimize your transformation. So, you know, how to, how to sequence and how to, how to plan for an effective transformation and how to really get the most value out of your transformation. And that's sort of a, a lost art or a forgotten art, I should say, where people don't often think about, you know, how do I get the most value for my organization out of this initiative? And so we're going to talk about some of the nuances about that. And that's sort of his area of expertise is optimizing implementations themselves, but also more importantly, optimizing the value that organizations get out of, out of their implementation. So we're going to have Dave on the show uh, next, actually, after this break. And then later in the show, uh, we're going to have uh, Allison Hopkins and Brian Potts from Third Stage Consulting. We're going to be talking about life as a working parent and just some of the things to be aware of and uh, some of the lessons there. And, and you, you had a good you'll have a good discussion with those guys uh, later uh, in the show. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be back with Dave Beldick. And uh, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Are you ready for transformation in 2021? Are you ready for change? Well, we want to help ensure that you're ready at Digital Stratosphere on April 20 through April 22nd. Digital Stratosphere is the only technology agnostic event of its kind, and we're bringing it to you digitally. This unique event is intended for anyone about to go through any sort of transformation, whether it be a digital transformation or a business transformation. This event is going to cover topics from experts ranging from strategy, to planning, to program management, to change management, to technology, everything you need to know to make your transformation successful in 2021 and beyond. And if you're one of the over 1,000 people that attended one of our past Digital Stratosphere events, this one promises to be bigger, better, and even more stratospheric. And the best part is that because this event coincides with Third Stage's three-year anniversary, we're providing the first day of keynote sessions to you with no registration fee. And if you would like to attend all three days of the conference, we've provided deep discounts to celebrate our three-year anniversary. So bring your entire team to Digital Stratosphere and get ready for transformation. Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa Noble. You can find us every Wednesday on YouTube at 10 a.m. Eastern Time in the United States, 3 p.m. London, 11 p.m. Hong Kong Time. You can also subscribe to us on any of the podcast platforms. And we also invite you to follow us and engage with us on social media, primarily LinkedIn. That's where we're most active. If you're on LinkedIn, check us out there. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter as well. Um, so our next guest is Dave Beldick from Third Stage Consulting. Dave is a, a senior manager, uh, managing consultant at the company. He uh, manages and leads a number of different engagements uh, with us. And Dave's actually someone that I've known for several years in the industry, even prior to starting Third Stage. So excited to have him on our team and excited to have him on the show today. And we're going to talk today with Dave about this whole concept of getting more value out of your transformation. 
And uh, like I mentioned before the break, it's, a, it's something that a lot of organizations don't think about when they embark on these projects. But given that you're about to spend a lot of time and money and resources and potentially heartburn on, on this sort of project, it's important to make sure you're getting the most value out of it that you possibly can. So, uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you and I share a common interest in benefits realization and benefits optimization. And, and uh, you and I have known each other now for a few years and, and run in the same industry circles. And it's almost like uh, a kindred spirit or, or, you know, kind of a long lost brother or something when I hear you talk about some of this stuff, because, you know, there's times when you, you talk about the way transformation should be versus the way they actually are in reality most times. Um, sometimes you feel like you're crazy when you start talking about this stuff. And then you come, and I come, come across someone like you who, who shares a lot of the same uh, values and in, in sort of approach and philosophy to these sorts of transformations. And so what I wanted to do today is just ask you a bunch of questions around uh, benefits optimization in general, you know, how to get more out of your implementation and really how to, how to implement right. You know, and a lot of what we'll talk about, I think, runs counter to what software vendors and system integrators might tell you. Yeah. But this is what you and I both found to be uh, pretty, pretty effective, um, both in terms of doing it right from the start, but certainly if you're in the middle of a project and you're already starting to see some warning signs or you're concerned that things might be getting off track, we'll talk about some things you can do to remediate that as well um, throughout the discussion here today. So um, I guess to start, you know, if we just back up and before we start talking about how to optimize benefits and maybe get even more fundamental you know, forget about optimizing benefits for a moment. And let's just talk about how to not fail. You know, how do, how do we go through yeah. these implementations in a way that isn't going to fail? You know, a lot of the research that you've pointed to that I've pointed to uh, from Gardner and other industry analysts, even our own research at third stage supports this, shows that most projects fail 50% or more. Some stats I've seen are as high as 80% of transformations fail. Why is that just at a high level? What are some of the reasons why those projects fail? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of things, of course, and and but but one of them I know is near and dear to you, and, and one of the big ones is organizational change management. Uh, I think another big one is is getting the master data right. We all know ERP is a beast when it comes to data. You've got to have that right. And and if you think about these two things, unlike a lot of the other technical stuff that happens during a project, these are things that actually the implementing organization largely needs to own. I mean, you know, a system integrator is going to help you a little bit with giving you guidance through some of the OCM stuff and, and, you know, like doing business impact assessments and stakeholder analysis and stuff like that. But ultimately, it's you, the implementing organization that needs to get your organization to change. And with the master data stuff, again, they're going to help you with some of that technical stuff. But they can't tell you what your materials are. They can't tell you, you know, your bill of materials. They might help you decide, do I need a single level or a multi-level? Okay, that's cool. But they can't tell you what the ratio of ingredients are. That You've got to do that. So, so you, you find that the implementing organization has got two heavy lifts that they have to do. And, I mean, typically they're not experts at that. So that's, that's to me, that's, that's a lot of the reasons why, it, why, they, why failures happen. Right. Yeah, those are two big ones that, that we often see, the change management data. Um, what about, you know, if we, if we sort of dig in a little bit more into sort of the nuts and bolts and the moving parts that contribute to either success or failure, uh, one of those that I know you and I've talked about in the past is, is business process improvement, business process mm-hmm. mapping, value stream mapping, whatever you want to call it. Um, when should that process start? Because that, that is kind of a root cause for a lot of, a lot of projects that struggle is they don't address business process and workflows well or effectively or at the right time. So when should that business process work start? 
Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a big believer that that business process works to start very early in the game. I think, you know, there's a lot of things you've got to do in an ERP implementation that you really can't get into too much until you actually have a system defined and all that stuff and a lot of that detailed stuff. But there's a whole bunch of supporting processes, what I like to call the foundational support processes that, that you've got to put in place first. And uh, I mean, for, for example, if you're if you're going to be moving to an ERP system and you're on legacy, ERP is a, you know, it's a, it's a real time system. So if you're not doing real time activities today, if you're not, you know, if you're in the habit of, of uh, um, doing something where, where your, your folks on the shop floor might record stuff on paper or, or even in another system and then they upload it, you know, a day later or a weekend, you know, if it, they work on the weekend and load it up on Monday, that's, that's something you've got to overcome. You've got to try to get to where you're doing that real time. And that, that doesn't just happen. You know, that you've got to work through that. And, and uh, I'm a big believer that the more of those things like that, that you can get done before you start your implementation, the, the better it'll be. Uh, so, so I'm a big believer to start that stuff early. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard you, you talk about the, uh, the analogy of, you know, if you need a, a taxi, and you, you call the taxi while you're still getting ready or the taxi shows up and you're not ready yet. And you're still packing your bags or getting the kids ready or whatever. Oh uh, yeah. It's running, right? Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's one thing that, you know, uh, what, what I've seen is a lot of folks, a lot of organizations, they want to, they want to get started quickly. They want to go give me a system integrator, then I'll get started. And what you find out is, is that there's a lot of things that you've got to figure out for yourself. Like, you know, who, what, what are my, who owns what materials, who owns what data elements, who, who, who do I go to for certain decisions? How do I, you know, how do I even categorize these things to prioritize my work activities and stuff like that? And, and what you see happen is when you, if you wait until you get the system integrator to start any of that stuff, then when the system integrator finally comes in and, and you say, okay, now, I, you know, I've got, I've got these I'm looking at data and I see a, I see a customer and you've got four different addresses here. What's the right one? And then you're scrambling then to go figure that stuff out. And, or, you know, just any number of a thousand uh, uh, examples I could give there. Uh, what you find out is, you know, the system integrator, you know, they're very patient. They'll wait. I'll wait. Uh, you know, it's just take right. your time. It's all billable. It's all good for me. So you, you find yourself scrambling, doing things that, you, you know, you should have done, you know, months ago. Uh, you, you knew this project was coming, you, you know, you've got some things to clean up and, and you didn't take the time to do it. I, it's funny, I talk to people after, uh, you know, they're a year into an implementation and, and, and inevitably they all say, God, I wish I started this stuff early. If I had just, you know, because you got so much stuff to do, and then you realize why am, I, why am I having to figure out some of these things now when I should have figured that out before. So I, I'm like, anything you can and, 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 and and should do before you, you can bring in the, the system integrator, I think you should go after because I think those are things that if you can, if you get, if you can get some of those things knocked out before you bring in the system integrator, then you'll be much more efficient in, in their use because they're, they're, they're not, they're not inexpensive resources there. The meter does run pretty fast. So if you can knock those things out, you'll get uh, much more efficient use and, and be more effective there. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting to meet that client that says, you know, the one mistake we made is we wish we wouldn't have started, you know, Workstream X as early as we did. We started it too soon. I've, I've yet to meet that client for anything. I mean, whether it's 
process improvement or data or change management, um, I would love to meet that client someday because I would be, I'd rather err on that side, you know. Exactly. Of, uh, It'd be nice to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with yeah. you. I haven't met that client either. Yeah. Someday, you know, we, we'll, we'll keep striving to that uh, <laughs> level of, of achievement there. Um, so when we look at the technology itself, though, when we look at um, cloud technology and other advancements, mm-hmm. um, configuring and setting up a ERP system now is a lot easier than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, as far as just the, the complexity and, and relative ease of, of setting up the technology. Why does this, well, let me, I won't, I won't answer the question for you. Let me ask, <laughs> does, does this mean that implementations are getting easier, faster, cheaper overall, given that the technology has advanced this much? But, you know, it's interesting because if you talk to the system integrator, the, you know, the answer you might hear is, of course, it's, this is easy now. We can, it's so much easier to set up. And, and, but as you know, that the actual standing up of the system is such a small part of the overall success factors for, for getting the, the implementation right that uh, uh, it really, it, in fact, it almost works in the, against you because what happens is because you can stand it up so much faster, there's this belief that we can make this thing happen faster. And what happens is, you know, that all that organizational change that has to take place all that data cleansing that has to take place. Now that time frame gets shrunk. And so now you've got much more pressure to get this done. And, you know, again, the system integrators, I'm, I'm take your time. I'm good. You know, I'm patient. They're tapping, you know, the meter's running and you, and, and you really get a huge amount of pressure from both internal and external when that happens. So you see the expectation set at leadership. You're, you know, if you're an implementing organization, the CEO, here's how easy it is to set stuff up. And they're thinking, oh man, this used to be a two-year project. Now I can do it in, in, in a year or 16 months. And, and that mindset just starts the whole ball rolling. And uh, it, it's tough. I, I find it actually, I think it, the, 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 I, the notion that you can stand it up faster, um, but there's actually another one, one other thing I, I should have said, because, because of the cloud uh, structure, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the bells and whistles that used to be available it's a little bit more vanilla, I, I would say. That's how I would put it, a little bit more vanilla. So you have less choices. So right. with less choices, that tends to mean you're likely to have to adapt more. So you got right. more adaption in shorter time frame. It really, it, it gets tough. It's tough. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. And, and if you think about technological advancements in general, in, in addition to being a little bit more straightforward and a little bit more vanilla in terms of how you set it up, Given all the advancements in technology, think about things like artificial intelligence or uh, blockchain or predictive analytics, whatever it may be. There's a there's a lot of advancements that have happened in, in technology, um, in addition to the cloud. And what I would argue is that those advancements and the tech, technological changes have actually increased the risk and increased the amount of time and effort it takes to implement. Not because the technology hasn't gotten better, but because now you're imposing more change on your organization. Whether it's because of these vanilla workflows that now you're being forced to adapt to or and or because the technological advancements as a whole you know for the for the enterprise software has changed so much that it's going to be a bigger change a bigger leap for your organization to adapt to it i totally agree yes but software vendors and system regulators don't want you to hear that they don't no. want to tell you that because that that will they don't want to spook you because you're about to sign this big you know multi-million dollar contract potentially for software and services to go on top of that so i think it's you know, important to back up. And even if it's the right answer for you, you know, that solution and that system integrator you might be talking to, you really want to take that with a grain of salt um, has been 
you know, my finding, just kind of make it right sized for your organization. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of almost like to change the dialogue out there in the industry because there seems to be this once it, once an organization is committed to a, to a project, they, they kind of focus on that go live. I want to get to that go live faster. Um, and I, I really want to change the dialogue. So they're more thinking about how do I get to world-class ERP operation faster? And it's not the same thing because you can, you can rush into a go live and have a train wreck and never get to world-class or you can take the time, build the proper foundation and, and go live a little bit later, but ultimately get the world-class faster. And, and that's, that's kind of where I get excited is, is you know, it's, it's not about rushing to go live. It's about how do I make sure I'm successful, number one, and how do I get the world-class the fastest way? And I think yeah. it's by putting those foundational pieces in place first, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Um, well, actually, continuing that thread, actually, that's a good segue into the next question I had for you. Um, I've heard you talk in some of your presentations that you've given about this topic, about how a lot of organizations think of Go Live and some of the activities within Go Live as, as sort of a one-time event, whether it's uh, the data cleansing. I'm going to do a one-time mm -hmm. event where I cleanse the data and I migrate it over, or the business process mapping. I'm going to, I'm going to define it once, design the system, and then build the system on top of that. Um, same with inventory management. That, that seems to be the conventional um, thinking, but what, what are some of the flaws with that approach or what are some of the nuances that you suggest is a better approach than that sort of one-time mentality? Yeah, so I think, and if you take, you know, a good example is in the inventory space, you mentioned that one is, uh, you know, people do sort of understand you have to have good clean inventory to operate successfully in an ERP system. And what you get is a lot of pressure from the system integrator to make sure your inventory is good. Um, but you know, they, you can kind of get talked into, I'm going to do a plant physical. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to look at every inventory record. I'm going to make sure it's perfect. The truth is, even if you could wave a magic wand and make the inventory perfect when you first went live, if you don't have in place the, the, the right foundational pieces, the right, you know, that you're doing, that you're doing cycle counting and that when you do cycle counting, then you, then you start to analyze and do root cause analysis for, for why inventory is getting out of whack and then go after those things and have, you know, have those early detection um, processes in place to understand when you have problems. If you don't have that and you just do a, a, you know, a plant physical and go live. Okay, great. Day of go live, you're in good shape. The day later, you're, you're not, not as good a shape. A week later, it gets worse. And if you, and if the, here's the worst part about that too, though, is if you don't have those, those uh, early detection things in place, you might go a month or two before you start to really see, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And, and uh, you know, because when you first load that inventory and you're promising stuff to customer, largely a lot of times you're, you're, you're filling out of inventory. And if the first snapshot of inventory is good, you have that false sense of security that everything's okay. But as soon as you start to, you know, to create new inventory and put it in place and you don't have these, these foundational support processes in place, then you start to, 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 you know, to get a little bit out of whack and then suddenly you start missing orders and, and then you start looking and to find out what's happened. And, and, you know, things have been, you know, you found some little thing that you should have detected day one or day two, uh, it's been going on for a month and and now you got a you got a, a mess you're dealing with and and that's the that's the big thing is is if you don't have some of these things in place early uh and 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 if you treat it like a one-off event 
um, you know, you're just gonna, you're really gonna, gonna find that, that you got an unsustainable solution, and and you don't want that. You want to be able to, you want to have, you know, continuously monitor and stay on top of these things. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of one of my uh, early projects in my career. It was actually the first project that I was the lead consultant on uh, back, you know, back in the early 2000s. It was for a uh, a large utility company in the African region, and so I got to go out, you know, fly to Africa and, and do this uh, analysis of an SAP implementation. They had just finished implementing SAP and then they had implemented um, a geospatial information system is what they call it in the utilities mm. industry. It's, it's basically a technology that tracks all of your assets in the field and all the maintenance that needs to happen to go along with it. And it just shows you how, how it all ties together. Um, so they implemented these two technologies and they hired us because they said that the implementation was a disaster technology doesn't work. We've got all these data corruption issues, inventory issues, things like that. And, you know, as we dug into the analysis, we found that actually the implementation itself wasn't the problem. You know, the technology is working. The problem is all your processes and the people that are touching the system are breaking stuff. You know, they're, they're in there, you know, they're not tracking uh, updates to the assets the way they should. They weren't tracking maintenance the way they should. Even just inventory adjustments or inventory movements within the company, they weren't tracking that the way they should have technology would, would allow them to do it. It was set up right, but it just wasn't being used. So, you know, to your point, it's almost like, uh, you know, it's almost like if you've got a big gash on your head and you just kind of slap a Band-Aid on it rather than trying to, you know, rinse out the gash and, you know, kind of get to the root cause of, you know, how do I avoid gashing my head in the first place? Um, you know, really getting back to that root cause, I think is a, a really important point. And that's why so many companies go through these transformations is to improve their operations, but yet they expect the technology to somehow just solve all their problems for them. Yeah, and I and I actually like the example you used there because a lot of what you just described there had nothing to do with the ERP system per se. It was all that kind of behavioral stuff that I you know my my philosophy is if you're going to be in, so if you're going to go to ERP you've got to be good in, in inventory. I got to be really good in my processes. Demonstrate that first. Figure that out. Figure that stuff out. I mean, if you got to, I mean, I've even seen where where an organization says, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do cycle counting after I go go live because I know I have to. And then right. they find out that the that the layout of the warehouse really is not very conducive for that. So suddenly they're like, well, I can't really do what I thought I could do. You want to figure all that stuff out before you go live, not after you go live. I mean, and so so yeah. so I, you know, some of these foundational things, get good at it first. I think that's that's the key thing. And then you well that that tells you, you know, you know what it takes to get there. Now now it's a much smaller leap when you get to go live. If you're doing all of those changes to go live, the, the things that are absolutely required, you know, system type stuff that has to be done, you know, there's 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 definitely change that happens to go live, no question. But it doesn't have to be all those things. All those half of that stuff you can do before you go live, and that way that way you kind of kind of like I said, get good at it, and then and then all you have to do is figure out how I how do I get good at it in the new system, as opposed to, you know, how do I learn how to do it for the first time in the new system? You know, it's it's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if if you're a CFO or or any sort of C level executive in a company, and your your organization is about to go through that process that you're saying, we, or that you and I are both saying you shouldn't do, which is to force all those changes all at once at go live, even if you're doing a phased rollout where you're doing it by location or by department, that's just too much risk. You don't need to take that. There's no reason to take that level of risk. And if you're an executive, you should be terrified of that of yeah. that um, idea and not enough executives recognize how, you know, how big of a deal that is or how big of a risk it is. 
Right. Yeah. And even even as you say, if it's a phase go live, um, you know, for the people that are going live in phase one, it's new to them. And, and for the people going live in phase two, it's still new to them. So unless, you know, unless you do some of that stuff before, um, you know, it's still there's a lot of, you know, you learn things, go live one to go live two and whatnot, but still for the people on the floor that are going to actually experience it, they don't experience it until they experience it. And then, uh, you know, far better to experience as much of that as you can before go live than, than having to face it at go live all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If anything, just it, it helps morale and at the very yeah. least, it's going to help morale and reduce the chaos that, that goes along with with it. Right. And, and I, I, I actually talk about the uh, kind of that go live leap is that if you if you don't do any of that stuff beforehand, if you don't do that foundational stuff and you say, I'm going to do it all as part of my go live, then you really haven't demonstrated capability. And so there's sort of a, it's a big leap that takes place at go live. And, and if you can at least do some of those things and measure it, like if I inventory is a perfect example, you know, if I'm if I'm monitoring my inventory accuracy, and I can see I'm moving the needle and I'm, you know, I get the 98%, 99%. Um, I got something measurable, tangible I can do. Uh, And master data stuff, if I want to look at my bills of material, what's my bomb accuracy? Uh, I want to work on that because I I want my data to be as representative of the physical reality as it possibly can be. So I measure these things and, you know, all that stuff are things you can work on uh, before you go live. And, 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 uh, uh, you know, that, that's, having something measurable like that is, is really good because it'll help you feel like, all right, I know I'm ready. I've done the things. I, I, I knew I had a mess because I, I jumped into it and I figured out, and I, now I figured out how to get good at it. I'm finally now ready to, to implement. Uh, if you can do it that way, it, it, it makes the, the leap and go live to be much smaller. And you got a lot more, as you said, the morale is up because you sort of know I'm ready now. You, you, you know what you, you know, you, you've worked on it. You know, you can handle it now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you hit on a couple of things here in the discussion that I want to come back to after a quick break. Uh, you, you mentioned user competency, and then we've been talking about system integrators and their role in a transformation. And so we come back from the break. I want to ask you a few questions around how to build more internal user competency to where you have that level of maturity that you should have by the time you go live, but most organizations don't have. And along those same lines, how you balance that with what the system integrator's role on the project is. And I think that's where a lot of companies struggle. So I want to ask you some more questions around that uh, right when we come back from a break here. Um, I'm here with Dave Belder from Third Stage Consulting. We're talking about transformation, benefits, optimization, and uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Okay, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here at Dave Beldick. 
You can find Transformation Ground Control every Wednesday uh, live on YouTube, 10 a.m. Eastern Time in the United States, 3 p.m. London or 11 p.m. Hong Kong. And you can also subscribe to us on audio-only podcast formats like Google, Spotify, uh, Pandora, Apple Music, uh, whatever the case may be. So Dave, before the break, we were talking about, uh, you, you mentioned this concept of, of user maturity. I'm gonna come back to that, or user competency, I should say. I'm gonna come back to that in a second. But before I ask that, you know, maybe as a, as a preface to that question, um, what are your thoughts around when to bring in a systems integrator? And I know that's a bit of a loaded question, but you know, what's the right timing? What should we be thinking about in terms of how we engage with and partner with the system integrator? Tell tell me your high level thoughts around that. Yeah, so so I think you know as you kind of look through getting ready for an ERP implementation, you, and you start thinking about the kind of things that you have to do to be to excel in there. Uh, I always kind of I, I like to look at it as um, you know if when the system is a is a good representation of the physical world, life is good in an ERP system. And, and so now you, so you've got to figure out how to, how do I do, how do I make my, how do I, how do I achieve that? And, and it's not just about inventory. That's the obvious example where you're, you know, I can measure my inventory record accuracy, but, you know, we talked a little bit about um, how do I, some of the master data stuff, you know, how do I make sure that, that my bombs are representative of what we actually do, that my routes are representative of the actual rates we perform. Uh, things like that. Um, if you're going to do any kind of supply chain streamlining, uh, I think you want to you want to do that. You want to do that before you get into an ERP project. You can be a mess trying to unravel that stuff. I've actually seen, I've I've been through implementations where um, the organization took a look at their materials and they said, well, you know, we don't we don't really have time to figure out where we, you know, what, what materials are going to go to what plants. So let's go ahead, extend all materials to all plants. That'll give us the most flexibility. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, because what you just did to the project team is you took what should have been this much work, made it this much work. And, and when you think about what happens when you do something like that, and I know I've gone off, off your, I've gone a little bit down a tangent, but let me finish the thought and I'll come back and answer your question. But when you think about what happens, <laughs> when you do something like that, let's say you're, you know, your project was going to dedicate 10,000 man hours or whatever, just pick a number, 10,000 man hours to, 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 uh, you know, to your, your data cleansing activities. When you got a data cleansing activity this big and you're putting 10,000 on hours on versus a data cleansing activity that's this big and you're putting 10,000 hours on it, just think about that. I mean, in, in the big, when you're putting, when you extend all those materials everywhere and I'm going to put so much effort, I'm going to get mediocre at best data. You know, it, it, it's going to be sloppy. It just, it just is. Whereas if I can, if I can really take the time to figure out where do I really want to run my, my supply chain, where do I really want my materials to be, I can, I can hone in and make that footprint as small as possible. Then that same hours that go into that, that just makes that the quality of that go up, up, up. So I'm always a big proponent of figure these things out first. You know, when you're in the middle of a project, you don't have time to figure all that stuff out. Figure that stuff out first. Do your mapping of your of your supply chains. Understand what materials should exist where. Uh, you know, there's a hundred examples of, but it's stuff like that. Just figure out all the things that you can do that only you can do, 
And, and you don't need a system integrator to tell you how to run your supply chain, right? You've got to figure that out. And I always say, make that data footprint as small as you can make it. Uh, and, and if you do that, then the, then the level of effort you put into it will make, will make the quality of that go up, up, up. So, but it, but, but it, takes, it takes time and effort. So, so you, you say, when, when, you know, when do I bring the system integrator in? It's after I've done those things, after I've done all of the things uh, that I, I can do um, to get ready for them. So I know, I know when I bring the system integrator in, now I'm going to make the most efficient use of their time. I'm not going to be spinning my wheels. Like, like we said, the taxi driver, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be cooking the kids breakfast while the taxi driver is sitting in the driveway. I've done that stuff. I figured it out and now I'm ready to go. And, and uh, so to me, that's, that's the key is figure out those things that you can and should do before, um, before you bring them in and, and then you'll be way ahead of the game. And that's something third stage can help with for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the analogy of, you know, a marathon runner who, and by the way, I'm not a marathon runner, so I'm, I'm <laughs> these credible people to be talking about this, but to, to go with that analogy, if you, uh, you know, start a marathon just in a full on sprint, you know, and mm. then you've got 26 miles to go, but you haven't paced yourself, you're actually, you know, expending too much energy too early in the race that, you know, you risk not finishing the race or very least you're, you're, you're dying by the time you, you finish. And it's a lot like that. I think a, a lot of people have the mentality of, okay, we picked our technology, we picked our system integrator, and we know we want to get this done in a reasonable amount of time. So we better start tomorrow. We better sign the contract, get the system integrator here right away. And of course, the system integrator, to your point, is all over that. They, they love that idea because they can start yeah. building right away and they make money faster and mm -hmm. uh, they're winning. But you know, I think you have to take, you have to start slow and pace yourself and we'll get in a second uh, to your, your concept of, of user um, competency. Um, you want to make sure you have that user competency built up before you, you bring in the system integrator. But, um, but I think that that mentality, people feel like they're going faster because they're starting fast and they think that's going to lead to a faster outcome. But in reality, it's, I think what, what you're saying and what I agree with is that you're, you're actually, you're actually creating more difficulty. You're more likely to experience delays and you're more, you're more likely to have problems with the implementation if you take that approach. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's it's back to that. What I said, I, I'd like to change the dialogue about is I, I wish people would think more about how long it takes me to get the world class ERP operation as opposed to how long to get to go live. Because as long as you're just looking at how fast I go to go live, like I said, I can make a train wreck happen fast. Um, right. But that's not, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what so it sounds like, you know, you want to get ready and, and spend some time doing the, the things you need to do to get that foundation in place before you bring in the system integrator, or certainly at the very least, certainly before you bring in the whole army of consultants, because they're, you know, the system integrators are notorious for bringing in the big army of people that are on site or in today's day and age, maybe remotely. And certainly, you know, you've got offshore consultants, a lot of times they're getting brought in and it's really easy to lose control of that, you know, lose control of that meter running uh, if you don't have a handle on that. Right. Um, but when you, when you look at what the system integrator does um, versus what, you would do as an implementing organization. Um, how do you differentiate between the, the project focus of the system integrator and the operational focus that's required to make a, a project successful? And you've, you've talked about this in some of your thought leadership, the difference between project focus, which is what an SI does, and then there's the operational focus, which is what actually uh, is what leads to success. Yeah. Uh, let's see, a good example there might be 
in the data space, I, I like when I look at data, for example, that I kind of I'm going to categorize it as like two two giant buckets. One is the set it set it and forget it bucket, and the other one is the monitor and adjust bucket. Um, and and by set it and forget it. So if you're talking about plant names, material names, and descriptions and stuff, things that you know you set them up once and and you're not going to change them. But then you look at things like you know like like my bills and material and you know the the ratios of ingredients in there. They might they as my yields improve, they might need adjusting a little bit. As my rates improve, I need to change my routes a little bit. As I get better and better at supply chain execution, I might have to change my lead time a little bit. So so operationally, you've got to have things in place to be able to monitor those kind of things, and and to be able to to actually update them continuously. Uh, in a project, what it, what it, what the system integrator they treat everything like the set it and forget it kind because all they're worried about is what what values do I need to have in place at go live, and you're left holding the bag after go live. It's like what are you going to do a year from now? You know, if you don't have if you haven't first of all if you haven't done that kind of analysis to begin with, you don't know how to do it. Two, you you don't have necessarily the the proper values in there to begin with. And then three, when it comes time to make a change, you know, you're, you're scrambling trying to figure out, well, how do I even figure out what my, my bomb accuracy is or how, you know, what, what adjustments I need to make to my rates, you know, how do I even do that? You know, if you haven't gone through that process. So, so it, it, it's, it's um, again, it's, it's that kind of thing where you got to think about, you know, some of these ongoing things that you're going to have to do at, at, you know, when you're living in a system that you don't, you know, go live is like, you know, for the system integrator, it's like, Tell me the value you want to go live, and, and that's all I need to know. You know, so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great point. I mean, it, there's a big difference between building a system, which there's very well defined inputs you need to be able to build a system, versus building an operational model and an organizational model that supports whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Those are two very different things. Yeah. Um, what about this whole concept of user competency and decision making? Now, that's another thing you, you've pointed out in some of your thought leadership around the importance of both of those things, user competencies and decision-making. What is it and how does it apply to uh, the sort of transformation and how you approach your transformation strategy? Yeah, I think I think it's, it's, it's like some of the stuff we talked about before, about that early engagement, getting folks started early, uh, trying to, you know, if I've got, if I've got to put in place, um, you know, many things, many processes, many support processes to be able to to support my ERP system. If I can do as many of those in advance as I can, now my users have less to worry about at go live. Uh, so they have a better sense of what's coming. Um, they, they have a better sense of how easy it is to do certain things and, or not. And, and because of that, they can, they can make better decisions. Um, and, and I think that's the key thing is the earlier you have folks involved in the project, uh, uh, just say the smarter they get, the more competent they get, the more clearer they understand, you know, and the and and the more they realize what it's going to take to be successful. And then you start to think about things like, you know, when I, I'm getting ready to do my testing now, now I'm going to do some very detailed testing. I'm going to do my day in the life. I understand now I'm starting to I'm starting to envision how I'm going to do this in real life. And I and I, I know it well enough now to see that hmm I'm going to have a problem on third shift because they do something goofy that you know if we don't they got some weird scenario that that uh, I plant so and so that that if we don't you know check that out I can I can smell trouble so you start to get people thinking about about 
what what it's going to take to be successful and 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 suddenly they start to to gain in their confidence and and um and, and basically i mean it, it's the, the earlier you get started the, the smarter you get faster and the better decisions you make and 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 the less you have to worry about at go live if you take some of these other things and kind of get good at it before go live so all of that yeah. thing you know that's that's the big thing is start early because then you know you like you said nobody has ever complained about starting too early right yeah and, and it's it's also what you're describing is a way to mitigate that dynamic where you lose control of the project you know a lot of so many organizations that call us to come help remediate a failed project found that you know they just they just sort of lost control somewhere along the way they brought in the system integrator they outsourced everything to them system integrator isn't as transparent as they could be with why we have you know 10 or 50 or 100 people on this project what are those people doing do we really need them now um, and you have to keep in mind there's an economic incentive that that's not aligned with yours you know your your incentive is to build that competency in-house or should be to build that in, that competency in-house to to optimize the spend on the implementation and to optimize the way the business runs in the future and those are those two things are in, in conflict oftentimes so it's everything you're saying is a way to really it's a way to reduce cost it's a way to reduce risk it's a way to increase benefits uh, especially long term and it's also a way to increase ownership of the project so that you can get rid of the consultants faster. Um, and you know, one of our goals at third stage is to get, to work ourselves out of a job as fast as we can, because the faster we do that, um, you know, the, the better job we've done and the more happy, you know, the happier the client's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you make a good point too. The, the, if you've get the, the more, the, the higher competency you have with the, with the folks that are actually in the middle of the, you know, the implementing organization, then you know when you get toward the end of that engagement, you kind of pick the brains of the of the system integrators uh, in a little better better place. You're not you're not you're not scrambling with with uh, uh, the kindergarten stuff. You've moved on to calculus now. Now you're really dealing. You're really going after some of the some of the stuff because they're they're. I mean, I, I I'll be honest. I work with a lot of system integrators, and there's a lot of bright folks out there for sure. Oh, yeah. And and if you can get if you can make the most of that. Um, that knowledge transfer at the end there is really important. And if you're scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, how to do the, you know, the, the basics of just pushing the buttons and that's where your level of thought is at the end of your, of your go live period, you're going to have to do a lot of learning on your own. But if you're, if you get, you know, pretty good and competent now, and you start thinking about, you know, in a year from now, I might want to do this. I might want to do that. What do you think? If you can start having those kind of conversations before the system integrator even leaves, now suddenly, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. You're, you're really, you know, the level of thought and the level of, of, you know, how quickly you get to world class, it's a game changer. So, so get started early and, and uh, make the most of the system integrated while you got them there. Yeah, absolutely. And focus less on uh, just trying not to screw things up too badly and focus right. more on how do, we, how do we get real value out of this? You're spending a ton of money and time and resources on this project. You might as well get the value out of it. Um, exactly. Which speaking, of, you talk about in some of your other um, thought leadership that that we've reviewed with you. Um, you talk about uh, the dynamic of spending so much time stabilizing go live that you never really finish the go live the way you envisioned it. <laughs> what, what do you mean by that, or, or maybe explain that phenomena to us a little bit? Yeah, well, I think I think everybody who who goes into an ERP system, they do have some lofty expectations of what what, what life is going to be like on the other end of that. And, uh, and if you have, you know, if you've done a lot of laid the foundation right to begin with and, and 
um, taking good advantage of, of the, the brain power that exists within your system integrator and you kind of get to that that the other side in a pretty good good place and you start you know going toward that world-class thing uh, that's one thing that's one end of the spectrum but if you get if you find that you didn't put the you know the foundational pieces in and you're struggling after go live and and all you want to do is just I just want things to be you know I just want to get through the day um, with you know I, 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 I've lost sight of that end goal I, I'm no longer thinking about world-class I just want to I just want to not go home with a headache every day you know and when you get to that it's almost a defeatist type attitude it, it's not it's not what you would call a failure um but it's certainly not what you would call a, a success you know it, it's one of those all i did was i migrated to a new system and i i, I stubbed my toe along the way I, I survived but i can't say much more than that um and and people get disheartened when when you get something like that when you go through a rough, a rough go live it, it's hard to keep the momentum up hard to keep that vision out there to trying to climb the world class you know you've got if you don't have that those foundational pieces in place you know it's pay me now pay me later kind of thing you, you know you're, you're going to have to go do some of that stuff and, and clean it up but um yeah. until you do you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna be struggling and, and you're gonna you know you won't be able to really I mean, world class is is kind of out of the picture for you at that point until you until you until you do some of those things. So a lot of what you're talking about here is focused on how to not only optimize post implementation results, but also how to make your implementation itself more successful and doing it with less risk and less time, less resources and, and higher success rates. But what about an organization or a project team that's already gone through the process or they're, they're in the middle of their transformation, they've already made a lot of the mistakes that you just advise not to make. You know, if I'm halfway through or I'm about to go live or I've partially gone live and I'm, I'm trying to right size things or optimize my implementation, what are some of the things you'd recommend to get started to sort of head the direction that you're, you've suggested so far? Yeah. So if you've already gone live and you're and you're struggling a little bit, then it, it's not too late. You know, we can still take a look at, at some of these foundational pieces and kind of see what what is in place and what is not in place. And and um, it, it's still you know it, it's still okay to work on those things. It's harder when you're in the middle of a project and you've got the date of a go live hanging over your head. Um, there, it's, it's you know, and I've been through enough of those. I, I understand the pressure of of you know hitting your timelines and. And now you got you got this guy Eric coming in saying, "Well, wait a second, are you ready?" You know, and all that stuff. Um, and so it's a balancing act. You can't, you, you, you know, are you ready? Are you, well, are you ready to go live? Well, you're never ready to have a failure. <laughs> so you do want to make sure that you uh, uh, that you're not going to fail. And I think what I what I tell folks is one of the things you can look at the most uh, that's the most telling indicator is is your your inventory. Uh, you know, if you have excellent inventory accuracy, it's not just about inventory per se. You have to do a lot of things right to have good inventory accuracy. Uh, and, and if you don't even know, that's very telling in and of itself. Um, but if you go and do some quick cycle counts and you find out, oh, I got, I got trouble, that, that's kind of, a, it's kind of a red flag. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, so if you just want to kind of get that, that one, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have time to take a three month break and all that stuff. I just want to, I just want to get a, get a sense of where I'm at. You know, there's all that project stuff, but if you just want to look at operationally where I'm at, if you, if you can prove to yourself that you have excellent inventory, you, you have to be doing some things pretty right. And, yeah. and, and, it, and if you're looking at it from, you know, if I got multiple rollouts or multiple sites, look at it at every site. Uh, 
And you might find that if I got like three sites going live here, you might find that that sites one and two are pretty darn good in inventory, but site three, they got a problem. You might have to make the call or pull site three out of that go live. Uh, you know, it's stuff like that you can do on the fly. Um, but I, I admit it's a lot harder to do this kind of thing in the middle of a project. It's far better to do it before. Um, yeah. Number one, first prize would be do it before. Number two, do it after. And number three is if you're right in the middle and you're a little bit nervous about, you can do a little bit of that and, and, and kind of test the orders and see where you are. And then you might have to cause a pause if you, if you see, you know, a lot of things that really make you scared. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Good points. I, you know, we find that with a lot of our clients that are midstream and, you know, a lot of clients hire us at that suboptimal point, but you're still better off making an adjustment, even if it's late and, and, you know, you have to think about the cost and risk of, potential disruption to the project itself right in the middle versus the potential cost and risk of disruption to your entire operations. And usually if you really think that through, you're going to find that it's a lot less risky and costly to fix something midstream, even if it means pushing out your go live or uh, incrementally adding to the, to the cost of the implementation. Uh, but I think, you know, beyond that, or just taking that a step further, so many organizations need to think outside the box of, you know, how do I take two steps forward? I might have to take a step back to get those two steps forward. So rather than continuing to spin my wheels or, you know, taking a, a project down this path that's likely to lead to failure and operational disruption, you know, how can I take a step back to be able to take two steps forwards? And usually there's pretty targeted prescriptive ways that you can have some real high value impacts on your on your project without materially disrupting the flow of the project or the timeline or the budget or whatever the case may be. So I think it's just a, a sort of a mindset shift, if you've said, as you've said as well. Yeah. So, well, well, good. Well, thanks a lot for, for being on the show here today, today, Dave, this was a good conversation and certainly, uh, you know, for those listening that would like to maybe just get a quick, quick sanity check or gut check on their either planned transformation, if you're about to start one or if you're in the middle of one and you're trying to figure out how do I, how do I get things back on track? Um, certainly reach out, you know, we've got our contact information below and at the end of the podcast uh, for, for those of you that want to reach out, even if, even if you just want to have an informal brainstorming session, around what you're thinking or what your challenges are. We can certainly give you some, some even informal guidance on that and what we've seen with some of our clients. So feel free to reach out and uh, Dave and I and others on our team would be happy to chat with you about that. So thank you again for, for being on the show here today, Dave. Really, really good to have you again. Thank you, appreciate it. All right, we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Are you ready for transformation in 2021? Are you ready for change? Well, we want to help ensure that you're ready at Digital Stratosphere on April 20 through April 22nd. Digital Stratosphere is the only technology agnostic event of its kind, and we're bringing it to you digitally. This unique event is intended for anyone about to go through any sort of transformation, whether it be a digital transformation or a business transformation. This event is going to cover topics from experts ranging from strategy, to planning, to program management, to change management, to technology, everything you need to know to make your transformation successful in 2021 and beyond. And if you're one of the over 1,000 people that attended one of our past Digital Stratosphere events, this one promises to be bigger, better, and even more stratospheric. And the best part is that because this event coincides with Third Stage's three-year anniversary, we're providing the first day of keynote sessions to you with no registration fee. And if you would like to attend all three days of the conference, 
we've provided deep discounts to celebrate our three-year anniversary. So bring your entire team to Digital Stratosphere and get ready for transformation. Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Parisa. Uh, Parisa, we just had an interesting discussion with with Dave Beldick. What what are some of your thoughts and observations? Yeah, he seems very insightful. So it's always great getting to hear his perspective on, you know, what he's dealing with with his clients. But one thing you said straight out the gate caught my attention like crazy. You said 80% of transformations fail. That's a there's a lot to lose when you go into a transformation. It sounds like. The, yeah, there is in the. Uh, yeah, the odds definitely aren't in your favor. It's almost like going to Vegas. You know, the odds are packed against you. The odds, the odds favor the house in, in this case. So, you know, what I love about talking to Dave is that he's he's all about how to how to flip the odds into your favor, and and that's you know that's really the way to think about it. And I think he, you know, the question came up of you know are we actually it was a question I or a conversation I had with a client recently, not with Dave, but with a client where they were saying, hey, are we just sort of destined for failure given these high failure rates? And, and the answer is absolutely not. That's not at all what those statistics tell you. What they tell you is that most companies are doing the wrong things, but there's 20% that are doing something right. And it's no secret. It's not a, you know, it's not rocket science or anything. So um, yeah, the odds are not good, but there's ways to tilt the odds into your favor for sure. Right. So kind of just walking into a digital transformation is not the way to do it. It sounds like there's a there's a proven formula step by step what you're supposed to do the things you're supposed to kind of lay out as a foundation before you dive in and that's a lot of what dave was talking about i mean it's kind of the pre-work um, before bringing on a system integrator is dialing in on what exactly are your processes are you cleaning up your data are you kind of mapping out what you know your projects look like in the day-to-day -day before you bring in the system integrator because like we were talking about in previous episodes it's you know, the system integrator is just racking up a bill and they're, they're hoping that you do that and kind of drag your feet and are figuring it out while they're on the clock. So it's in your best interest to figure that out before, lay down the foundation before you bring in the system integrator and, you know, kind of having that independent consultant come in and help you do that is, is a bonus, right? So cleaning up data was something that stood out to me as well because, you know, data can get messy, especially if you've been around for years and you have a lot of, uh, you know, data that you're combing through day to day. If you're in the manufacturing space, really whatever space, if you're in accounting, there's a lot of data that you're dealing with. And I'm curious on, you know, the process of cleaning up your data. Is it something that you have to do up front? Is it something that, you know, maybe you can get away with just migrating it over and then cleaning it up after it's in the new system? Or, you know, what's the first step, I guess, when it comes down to the topic of cleaning up your data, making sure that it's ready to go? Uh, what is the first thing that a company needs to do to prep for that? Well, the, the first thing a company should do, uh, which most don't, and, and Dave alluded to this in, in his conversation with us, is that 
you know, rather than just jumping ahead to our, we're going to clean our data and move it into the new system as sort of, a, I think you refer to it as a one-time event, um, what's even more helpful to do is prior to doing that, look at why does the data need to be cleaned in the first place? <laughs> what, what happened to the data? Why did it get corrupt or, you know, how is it getting dirty? And chances are it's because there's something that we as humans are doing to the data to make it corrupt. And so, you know, getting to the root cause and understanding how the data got corrupt in the first place and, and fixing whatever those processes are is critical. Then you can clean up the data and move it over to the new system so that so that you're bringing clean data into the system and you're able to keep it clean because you have processes and awareness and, and a focus on keeping it clean. So uh, to answer your question, yes, it, it, it should happen prior to the new system. If you bring over the old data that's that's corrupt or dirty, you're just starting with you know inaccurate information to begin with, and people are going to start blaming the new system, and it's really not the new system that's the problem. It's because your data was, was flawed from the beginning. So you do want to do that. You do want to do that sort of one-time event, as Dave mentioned. But as Dave also mentioned, it, it's not just a one-time event, though. There's more to it than just the one-time event. So... Um, and I think I, I mentioned in the interview too the example of the um, client I worked with many years ago that um, hired our team to come in and figure out why the system quote unquote didn't work. Um, but actually, the system did work. It's just that the data was getting corrupt because all the pe people at the company were corrupting it unintentionally, of course. But the processes were broken and that sort of thing. So I'd say it's two phases. One is figure out why it's dirty in the first place, fix those processes so you don't keep making it worse. And then transition or clean up the data, bring it over to the new system, and hopefully you can keep it clean because you've got new processes that that are designed to do that. So this might be the non-IT person in me asking, but like, how does data get corrupted? I mean, my initial thought is maybe you're inputting the wrong data. You know, that could be one root cause, right? But how does it get corrupt if you're putting in the right data and then it, you know, goes rogue? Well, you know, you think about all the little things or steps that happen in any organization on any given day and there's it usually it's not entering the wrong data it's usually not not entering data or not keeping the system in sync with reality so you think about you know someone in a warehouse that's moving you know a piece of inventory from one location to another or they're shipping inventory to a customer but for whatever reason they don't enter it in the computer uh, if they don't enter it in the system, now all of a sudden your data is corrupt because now it shows that the inventory is at a certain level in a certain location that isn't true. It doesn't reflect reality. So that person didn't try to corrupt the data, but the process was broken. Something happened there where that person didn't enter something in the system and therefore the data is corrupt. And that's just one example, you know, in any given minute, in any given day within a big organization with, you know, hundreds or thousands of employees, you can only imagine how many, you know, impacts or how many flaws or problems can can happen in any given day right so how does it impact the data migration phase if you do have corrupt data i mean does it just make it a longer drawn out process or how, you know how exactly does it impact that phase of the project well you know dave mentioned the uh we didn't go into a lot of detail we sort of we sort of glossed over it but he, he did mention something that's really important which is uh or or an answer to your question which is the uh uh, physical inventory. So, you know, one thing that people think is when they bring data over, they're just going to make sure the data is accurate, and then we're going to move it over to the new system. Well, to make sure the data is accurate, you have to go compare it to reality. So in, in the case of inventory levels, you have to go to a physical inventory 
to validate, you know, where, you know, what, what inventory you have, where the inventory is and match it to the data and, and fix the data because the data is probably going to be wrong, which is the whole reason why companies do physical inventories, you know, once or twice a year or whatever it is. So physical inventory is something that takes time and something that you should do prior to cleaning up and migrating the data. Um, same with, you know, just reconciling your, your GL, your, your trial balances and your general ledger and, and some of the things on the accounting side, you want to make sure that you've, you've cleaned that stuff up. So there's a lot of prerequisites to the actual uh, migration of data and the validation of, of making sure that the data is clean. Um, and a lot of project teams don't account for that or don't um, budget or allocate time to do that in their in their implementations. For example, you don't see physical inventory on a lot of transformation project plans because people aren't thinking, why would I do a physical inventory? What does that have to do with my transformation? But it has a lot to do with if you want the data to be clean to bring over, you, you need to do a physical inventory prior to that. Right. Now I'm curious, what role does cybersecurity play into this? I imagine it it is more prevalent depending on what type of data you're transferring over, right? I don't imagine, you know, hackers would be too interested in uh, you know, how many wheels you have in your inventory or whatever. But if you have something proprietary or if you have sensitive information on on your customers, uh, you know, to what level and how does cybersecurity play into the data migration process? Yeah, that's a, it is an important uh, point. It does play a role. And certainly, you know, when you talk about especially if you're talking about manually moving data from one system to another, you're, that's a, that is a lot of sensitive information. You, everything from your customer list to your, you know, your financial information to your, you know, the transactions with customers. If you're in, uh, you know, healthcare, uh, for example, that's, there's a lot of really sensitive electronic health record type stuff that you'd have to bring over. Um, so you, you do have to be real careful with what you do with that data and how you move it. Um, as far as how to, you know, maintain cybersecurity within the system. That's where, uh, you know, Daryl Crockett, who's one of our team members, the, the head of our data and security team, and she was on one of our episodes recently, and we'll have her on again uh, soon too. Um, she, you know, that's an area she can really dive into, but um, at a high level that it is something you want to be aware of. And, and it's not just the data itself in the migration process you have to think about. It's also when you have the data in the system, then how do you, you know, prevent, how do you secure your system from outside hackers to begin with, and also from internal uh, misuse of information. So setting up the right security profiles and making sure that only certain people can access information that they need. Um, setting up those security profiles is oft often an afterthought during a transformation because you don't really need it for the system to work. Um, I mean, you do because in order to do your job, you have to have the right security settings. But what a lot of people do in the interest of time is just say, we're just going to open it up and give everyone, I'm going to give Parisa access to everything just so I don't have to worry about her not being able to do her job. Now I've given her, you know, complete, you know, open up security profile to where she can do more than we really want her to do. And if you have any ill will or uh, bad intentions, it's going to be really easy for you to steal information or uh, at the very least, uh, even if it's not intentional, misuse or, you know, somehow accident accidentally uh, corrupt some of that information. So, um, so setting up the, the internal security and setting up those security profiles is, is just as important as the, the outside hacks that you have to worry about. Right. A lot of companies that experience a breach, a data breach, it happens internally. Uh, it's not always external hackers that come in and take your info. It's people who have access that you trust, that you thought you vetted, um, but that turn out to 
not have the same intentions that you would have hoped that they had. So definitely important. Now I'm interested in this, this topic of when to go live and rushing to go live, because we talk a lot about, you know, one of the biggest red flags of an ERP failure is the delays that you encounter um, because it translates oftentimes to be being over budget because the system integrators are on the clock, right? So when you're up against the notion of rush to go live and maybe, you know, you want to stay on schedule versus taking your time to make sure you're doing it right, um, but you don't want to label your ERP project as a failure. I feel like if you're a project manager or a project team, that's kind of a, a game of tug of war. You know, you're, you got to use your best judgment and, you know, if something seems off, you need to take your time and fix it. But what would you say uh, to the, the project teams that are kind of in that scenario where they don't want to delay because they know that that's associated with potentially higher costs, lower ROI, et cetera, but, and they want to get to go live, but it's, it's in their best interest to kind of slow down and reassess. Yeah. It, it a couple things that come to mind. One is that, you know, you have to get in the mindset of taking one step back to take two steps forward. And sometimes that's what, you know, those sorts of situations require. You, you almost have to step back, reassess in order to move forward effectively. If you're going down the wrong path, you, there's no, it doesn't do you any good. And you're not going to be more likely to succeed just because you're going faster down the wrong path or faster, you know, off a cliff or faster towards the train wreck. So, you know, I think that's unfortunately the way you have to think about it. Um, and a lot of people don't want to think that way. I mean, it's a, it's easy for me to say because we're sitting here on a podcast, you know, in our in our own little areas, and we're not the ones that have to, you know, they're in the day to day operations, living with the consequences of, of of our actions. But I think you know that's one thing is is recognizing the dynamic of one step back to take two steps forward. The other thing is uh, recognizing that there there's risk and uh, a downside associated with taking more time and money to get it right in the implementation and um, but you have to assess that or compare that to the risk and cost of not getting it right. And what I mean by that is you may, let's just say you're able to right size and you're able to get this done on time on budget without taking those that step back to go forward. Um, congratulations, you finished on time on budget, but the go live is a total disaster. You know, th that, you know, you have to assess that. What, what was that? What did you really gain by keeping things on track from an implementation perspective, but then finding out when you go live that you can't ship product, you can't close the book. It's total chaos. You know, customers are irritated. Whatever that that cost is usually, is usually exponentially higher than whatever incremental increase to time and cost might happen during the implementation. Now, the, the easy answer to all this is just get it right the first time. Like get get it right during the planning phase. I mean that that's the perfect world answer, um, and that's where you know Dave and I were talking a lot about what you should do from the start, but then a lot of times for a lot of organizations, it's what well, we didn't do that though. We're already halfway through and. We made, you know, A, B, and C mistakes. So what do we do now? How do we course correct? And I think that's a harder situation to get out of, and it's harder to navigate for the reasons you mentioned. But I think it's really a matter of, of quantifying the risk of a failed go-live versus the risk of spending more time and money on the implementation itself. That makes sense. I mean, it's kind of that trade-off, right, and making using your brain. <laughs> Seeing, you know, <laughs> Just think about does it. it. Does it make sense to to, you know, keep going? Is it going to pay off or cost us more if we, if we try to accelerate this versus taking a moment and making sure it's done correctly? So 
That makes sense. Now, what scenarios would you say are acceptable to delay for? I mean, I feel like that's a broad question because, you know, obviously if it's a very apparent uh, situation that you're going down the wrong path, that's probably an acceptable (laughs) scenario to delay for. But what are maybe some things that may not be super obvious that this would be, that the trajectory of this scenario would land you um, at a failed go live? Uh, what, what are some things that you've seen from past clients or things you've experienced that could be, uh, an acceptable cause for delay? Well, anything related to your readiness and your go, no go decision. So, you know, generally when we're helping clients through transformation or through implementations, we'll do a series of readiness assessments, uh, to, to see how ready the organization is for the flip of the switch, so to speak. So. That covers everything from making sure the technology is, is stable and that it's been tested and that, you know, we've we've worked through all the customizations, the integrations, all that stuff is fully developed and tested. And then we're not trying to go live or planning a go live soon while we're still fixing some of that stuff. A lot of organizations will say, well, we're going live in 30 days, even though we haven't fixed, you know, these certain functions or even though we're still testing or still uh, building certain capabilities or in some cases we'll see clients where, we're still getting new requirements from from employees, you know, 30 days before go live, we just got some new requirements from people. And we're going to try and build that and get that in the system before go live. I mean, you, you have to either say no and stop making changes or stop, um, you know, developing and, and decide you're going to commit to the go live the way things are right now. Or um, you have to look at the risk and say, look, this is too much risk. You know, we've got too many open ended issues, too many fires burning that we can't take the chance of, of going live and having this be a disaster. Um, again, it's easier said than done being on it, you know, hosting a podcast show. I fully understand that it's, you have political and organizational and financial dynamics at play that constrain some organizations, but you really do have to think long and hard about what is the risk and the impact of, of getting this wrong. And if you happen to err on the side of, you know, going live a little bit later than you could have, or you could have gone live a little bit sooner. That's a that's probably a better risk trade off than going live too soon. Because if you go live too soon and you and you realize it later, chances are the impact of the organization is a lot greater than if you just would have erred on the side of getting it right, taking the time to get it right. So again, easier said than done. I fully get it, but you sometimes just have to stop and ask the really tough questions. And you know, a lot of times your system integrator, to your point you know, they, they really have nothing to gain or lose by whatever direction you go, uh, or really they, they gain either way, but, um, it's your business and you have to figure out, you know, regardless of what the SI or the vendor might be telling you, it's important to, you know, make the decision based on your, your criteria and your comfort level and your risk tolerance too. You know, some organizations are less tolerant of risk than others, in which case you'd want to be even more conservative about when you go live and how you, you know, uh, make that decision. Right. And it's also what, what level of resources does your organization have? I imagine these larger organizations have a little bit more forgiveness in uh, being able to fund a project that goes over. Whereas if you're a small business, you're, you're really trying to stay on budget. So yeah. I imagine that comes into play as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In, in some ways, you know, the smaller businesses can navigate some of the risk a little bit easier. Um, you know, for, a, for a big company, the, the risk oftentimes is magnified just because of the number of people, the number of processes, the number of, you know, things that can go wrong. There's just more risk inherent in that. So 
I think the bigger a company you are, the more complex you are, the, the bigger the risk you've got to think about. Interesting. So I know we talked about when you bring, what a good time is to bring in a system integrator is once you have baked your business processes, you've done your process mapping, you've cleansed your data, that's probably a good time to bring in a system integrator. Is the same true for bringing in an independent third party consultant to help you with the overarching project? Well, generally, in order to get to what you just described with the system integrator, to get all that stuff in place, to be ready for the system integrator, it helps to have a third-party independent provider that can that can help you get there. Um, so, you know, I would say that, you know, it's, it's never never too late to bring in outside, you know, third-party independent help, but certainly the earlier you do it, the better, the better you're going to be in a position to own and have control of the project rather than having the system integrator come in and take, take it over for you. And uh, that, that was one of the more fascinating parts of the conversation with Dave was just this whole concept of, uh, what do you call it, user, user competency, you know, the level of, of competency that your internal team has. And you're never going to be 100% competent and 100% expert in transformations and technology and stuff like that, but you can certainly be in a lot better than, place than you are today or when you first start the project. And the more you can build up your team to be educated and to have the tools and guidance to manage the project themselves, then you can be more deliberate about how you use the system integrator as you can be, you know, you can have more transparency and understanding into what the system integrator is doing and why and where it doesn't make sense. You can challenge the system integrator and, you know, be more of a, a leader on the project rather than just kind of sitting back and letting the, the system integrator handle things for you. So um, that, you know, so to answer your question, having that independent third party advice like a company like ours, like third stage, um, you know, the sooner you do that, the more you're going to build up that user competency that Dave was talking about. Right. Taking ownership makes a big difference. That's for sure. It does. And speaking of ownership, uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to talk about, uh, not that you own kids, I, I suppose, you know, legally, <laughs> do you own your kids? I guess that's a whole nother. I'd say, <laughs> I'd say you own your kids, right? I mean, I, I think I do. I mean, I, I, I tell them that all the time. I own you and therefore you're going to do what I tell you, <laughs> but we're going to, uh, segue into, uh, Working parents, where you you're gonna have an interview with uh, Brian Potts and Allison Hopkins from the Third Stage team, talking about all things parenting and balancing work life and all that good stuff. So we're gonna bring uh, you uh, back on the show with uh, Brian and Allison here after we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. I've got the cash if you've got the hugs. It's been a if you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I am so excited for our next guest. We have Brian Potts, who's our Chief Client Officer and Managing Partner of Third Stage. 
as well as Allison Hopkins, who is a managing consultant with Third Stage. And they both have beautiful families, but they're also juggling and um, absolutely crushing it at building their careers as well. So I'm excited to have both Brian and Allison here to talk to me about what it's like to be a working parent. Welcome, Brian and Allison. Hello again. Hello again. So, Brian, you're the chief client officer and managing partner at Third Stage. Allison, you're a managing consultant. You guys both have beautiful families. Brian, I know you have one on the way. So this conversation is very much geared toward the working parents of the world, right? It's it's a juggling act, to say the least, in some cases, and in some cases more so depending on their age. Um, and it's always been that way, but even more so within the past year when we have had changes in childcare, had changes in how the school system operates, you know, I think parents are feeling it more than ever before. And, you know, even taking a step back before the pandemic, we're living in a day and age where, you know, the cost of living, depending on where you live, is so high that both parents are in the workforce now more than ever before. So really working parents make up a huge component of the of the labor force in general. So I think this conversation is conducive to a lot of people. And I think your perspective is very interesting because both of you have managed to find great success in your careers while still also building and growing your family. So I wanna hear about your guys' experience. Um, so let's just start from the top. Tell me about your family. Brian, I'll start with you. How many kids do you have? How old are they? Tell us a little bit about your family. So I've got a four-year-old daughter who just turned four and a, a boy on the way. One of each. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. And Allison, what about you? Yeah, so I have um, four kids and their ages are 11, um, six, four, and almost two. And uh, my oldest is a girl and the three younger ones are boys. So, um, and we are done. So congratulations, Brian, that baby stage is fun, but I am done. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. You got your hands full, Allison. <laughs> and I, you're, you're going to be able to provide a lot of light to both Brian and I, because I have a two and a half year old and we have one on the way. So as they Congrats. get, thank you. As they get older, I'm like, you know, it's always a new challenge as they grow up and, you know, hit that next year. It's something, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. And Brian, you can, you can probably attest to this. I mean, when your kids are below one, they sleep a lot, they're easy to entertain so you can get more work done. Right. And then when they become toddlers, if you don't have childcare, things can get out of control very quickly. Right. Forget the terrible twos. The threes are. It's so true. Yeah. I feel like my little guy's coming up on terrible threes too. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've had times where I'm on calls and all of a sudden the wall is covered in markers and the flower, like how did he get to the flower? You know, it's all thrown across the room. Yes. Speaking from experience. So that's its own challenge. And then as you get into the preteens or teenage years, it becomes almost like a psychology play of like 100%. how do you raise good humans, you know? So 100%, yeah. Make, make them human. Make them human, right? So, Allison, you said you have an 11-year-old, you have a 6-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 2-year-old, right? 
That's right. So tell me a little bit about your juggle. Like, what does it look like balancing work and your family? Yeah. So I think the pandemic has been a little bit of a blessing and a curse. So there's no travel, um, which is great. And also no time for mom to like, just get a breather to be by myself. Um, But the way that we juggle our schedule is, you know, I just try to set like family hours and I try to set work hours. And I think more than ever, it's been important for me to just respect my family schedule. And so my kids, um, uh, they're back in school and they are out of the house. I get all four of them out of the house by eight and back home um, with coffee in hand by 8.30. <laughs> and my it takes both my husband and I to like, get everybody where they need to be. And then we can do what we need to do, which is get to work. And um, so we have that schedule Monday through Friday. Um, on Wednesdays, my kids, um, so my two older ones go to the same school and the two younger ones are at different schools. So I have three schools that we're managing. So we just make sure that we can get them to their schools in the morning. And then in the afternoon, um, the kids get home around 2.30. And at that point in time, I have to have like a little break in my day to make sure that I can find out how their day is and what's going on in their life and make sure that they're set up with whatever they're going to do, whether it's some homework or play with friends. And then I can get jump back in until um, call it 5, 5.30 and then it's family time again, right? And so it's just a lot of effort to coordinate schedules and make sure that like, you know, there's prepping on the weekends to like have food available for everybody and meals and things of that nature. And so um, I think that just navigating um, really being like and sticking to your schedule, like you have to make sure that you plan everything. Like I've never been so mindful of my family schedule until this past, you know, 18 months. So right. And if you don't have a plan, it gets really chaotic. <laughs> I can only imagine. I've heard someone wise told me whatever your calendar looks like, whatever you block out on your calendar is what, sh- what is important to you, right? So it's literally managing your time and blocking out that time for the things that absolutely that matter. Yeah. And being and like feeling okay to just say like, this isn't going to work for me. And I know that um, in consulting, a lot of times we are on our clients' schedules. And so it's just really important for me to be upfront with my clients that, look, you know, I'm going to do everything that I can to like fit around your schedule. Sometimes I'm not going to be able to make that work though. And um, I think that just lets them get to know me as a person and know that I have other things that are really important. And um, it makes me more human when they actually can't see me in person. I think that that's like one thing that as I introduce myself, that like makes me more human um, is just letting them know that I have a family and that's important to me. Right. And oftentimes on the other end, they're in the exact same boat, right? Exactly. So it's right. Like you can create that connection that is kind of outside of the books, I guess. True. I guess. So um, I think a lot of what you're saying too, it, it plays into the employer because there's some employers that are very badge in, badge out, Work, work the nine to five, you don't have the option of taking a second when the kids get home or doing drop off a little bit later. Um, and I feel like that's where it gets sticky for working parents. You know, if you don't have that ambiguity, I guess, and that leniency, that's when things can get challenging. So it's exciting to hear that you found that with third stage. 
So Brian, I'll I'll pass it to you since you're you know you're kind of leading the ship with third stage. Um, tell me from your angle. I'll start. I'll kind of backtrack a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your juggle. I mean, you have a four year old. You have another one coming on the way. Um, you're you have a lot of responsibilities on your plate. Tell me what your your day to day looks like as you balance both. Yeah. Well, I think what we're getting into before is is a key in that there there's pros and cons to everything one of the i think blessings that we have in the consulting tech world is that our days don't they don't lock in at nine they don't end at five um there are a lot of people left in different types of navigations i think most of us in the it world have a and we can work whenever we work um a lot of times it's 24 7 and i think using that to our advantage like alice said you have to block off time that you have to block off if you don't do that, you're risking your family, and that's not an option for people. So what I've found valuable is, <clears throat> excuse me, take the time that's needed when it's needed, but don't don't try and limit the day. Um, obviously, sleep is important, but I found my mo- most valuable hours after bedtime, which we target 8, 8.30. It's getting later and later, but, you know, that 8 to 11 time frame at night is actually when I get a majority of my office work done. Now there's the client facing stuff that Allison was referring to. You, you've got to make very clear um, when you're available and, and stick to those. Um, the, the other end of that is you've got to let your family know. Um, you know, as kids get into the three, four, they start to understand that, you know, in my case, dad needs to work for a reason. I tell her so she can eat. Um, she appreciates that. <clears throat> but when you, when you set that rigidity, Kids, kids do learn, and I think that starts at an early age. So you need their help and your family's help to adhere to those schedules. When when dad shuts his door, she knows that she's not going to go in and you know bug me and try and sit on my lap and do all that kind of stuff. I do think corporate America in general is relaxing a little bit, and it's now okay to talk about kids and family. Whereas you know a decade ago, it, it, in, there's still a number of organizations that are I think struggling with this: the rigidity, the the firmness on on work, but I think more and more people are open to discussing more personal lives. I think that's a a helpful thing for navigating the the home life work relationship. Right. I couldn't agree more. So tell me a little bit about, you know, for you, you said your daughter has gotten the hang of, you know, knowing when dad is working, right? My son, I got to say, we're still working on that. (laughs) He'll run in in the middle of a conference call and it's brutal, but um, other than that, I mean, as far as the time in your day, do you, do you do what Allison was saying is kind of block it off and, you know, say this is family time. This is, you know, yeah. for work. Now I, I, I do it on a day-to-day basis because every family is a little bit different. We don't have that much rigidity in our house. So when, but when I set time aside, I'm going to set time aside. It's sometimes the day of when I know when I'm going to have dinner, but when we determine what that time is, is absolutely. Um, and it, it, it it does take a little bit of dependence on the family and you know i'm fortunate that i have a door to shut when i work but you know a lot of cases you know people working in multiple family households and you know apartment situations don't you know a lot of times you you're in a living room working so how do you i think the training of the kids early on is very important the the idea of quiet time um you know we're not huge fans of tv but there's a very big value to you know whether it's the Wiggles or Daniel or whatever the case may be, for you know 30, 60 minutes, well, uh, you're on a call because sometimes you know spouse is out and you've got to still take care of 
the young one, in Allison's case, many of them. Um, and you know, you've just got to find a way to make that work. Yeah. And I, I liked what you were saying, because it, it is true. It depends on the cut of the cloth, if you will, of what the company is. If you're in corporate America and you serve your clients specifically in America, working that nine to five is kind of a must, right? So having uh, your employees deviate from that can be a little bit more challenging, whereas when you're in the consulting world, it's a little bit more seamless, especially when you have international clients. And if you're working from eight to 11, you're actually working on your client's time. So it's interesting to see, you know, the type of business and how that plays into um, the needs of a working parent too. So tell me a little bit about, Allison, I'll come back to you. What has been the most challenging aspect of being a parent and working at the same time? Yeah, so I, um, prior to third stage, I um, led the product uh, management um, sector for Infor Retail. And um, I think, you know, a big determination for me to come in onto this consulting side was to have a little bit more ownership of my calendar. So when working for a corporation that was a global corporation team, my team was all over the world, my clients were all over the world, and at the drop of a hat having to be on a flight the next day to New York from Minneapolis, it was just really hard on my family life. And so, um, you know, I know that it's um, one of the things that comes with like, uh, with working for corporate, you know, a, a corporate job is that you have to kind of, you know, follow the schedule of your clients, of your, of your leaders. And, um, it was hard on me to, to have to be able to do that and leave my family behind. Um, I'm a mother and a wife, I'm a wife and a mother first and, um, and they came first. And so I just, I had to find something that was going to fit, um, my lifestyle for now. And that's not to say forever. That's just saying for now, I still can learn and grow and um, help people um, and help other companies by applying my knowledge. And so I just had to finally just say like, what are my priorities and and then follow that. And that's kind of what led me to, um, to, to coming to third stage. And really it was the fact that I can't, I have to be on my own schedule for now. And this is, this is the life that is important for now. And, um, I, one person told me like, you can't have it all at the same time. And, um, while I thought, you know what, I do have it all. And I do have it all at the same time because I've chose a different way to get what I need out of my career and third stage allows me to do that. So I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but really it was just that I, it was before coming to third stage, it was the hardest time of my life trying to, to do everything. And, um, and while I thought I was giving something up because I had a big fancy title and a big fancy team, I didn't actually, because I was more fulfilled doing what I love to do. Right. I love that so much. Cause I had a similar experience where, you know, it's, you said it best. It's what fits your lifestyle and where you are in your life. If, if the place that you're working at doesn't, you know, fit like a puzzle piece into your life, then you can change it. And I feel like for me, in my experience, I was hesitant to change it because things were good, right? Like, why would you change it? Everything's going so great. But 
are you getting the most out of both situations, your career and your family, or is one giving a little bit more um, than it needs to be? So I think one big takeaway off of what you just said is if you're not in a situation where it is conducive to you being a good parent or being a good employee, then change it. I mean, it's, it's up to you and where you take your life is up to you. And um, ultimately being happier and being more fulfilled is a little bit more rewarding than those titles and um, you know, situations like that. I don't know, Brian, what do you think? I, I love that explanation <clears throat> and you know, great to be working with you with you both in that regards um i think it, it, that absolutely comes down to it is is make it work for you and what i found you know well, yeah, I, I, i'm just a little bit older than call it a lot of parents um but there's a there's a significant shift as, as we all know when you become a parent as to what is priority in your life before it was my career you know i had a wife and all that but she can work her way around but as soon as you have that kid the responsibilities shift you know, career does drop to second. It has to, and that's our, our responsibility as parents. So make with that understanding and then making it work around that, I think that's the, the best approach. Yeah, I agree. And this reminds me, I worked really closely with an executive at a Fortune 200 company a few years back. And he his experience was so interesting because he had been at this company for 20 plus years, was there taking it from zero to a thousand. Um, and once they were at a thousand, he looked back and realized his kids were 21, um, and he missed it and he prioritized the wrong things. And that was his biggest regret. And if he could go back, he'd adjust it. So I think it's, it's exactly what you said, Brian, it's understanding where you are, um, when you are there and valuing the things that matter most, because you only get one chance at it. Right. Yeah. And I pre I love Allison's comment that you can have it all. Um, if you just have the flexibility and they understand that it's a, a great big world and there's the flexibility is increasing. I mean, regardless of COVID, we, we've, we've got a lot of choices, a lot of different directions that we can head. So make it work. I agree. A hundred percent. Well, let's take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, I want to take you up on that note on flexibility and talk a little bit about what COVID has done to the workforce. Um, so stay tuned and we'll be right back on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I am here with Brian and Allison from Third Stage Consulting chatting about working 
parents and what that journey looks like. Now, 2020 has definitely shifted the workforce in general. It's pushed people to work remotely. It's pushed parents to manage both working from home and helping their kids do virtual school. Um, there's been a lot of challenges and um, a couple stats here, 52% of employed parents um, say it's been difficult to handle childcare responsibilities during the pandemic. And then if you also stand that up next to a stat of 46% of employed parents have both the mother and father in the workforce. So when both parents are working, it's hard to figure out how to handle childcare when everything is kind of slipped out from under you. So I think the biggest thing is flexibility, right? I think 2020 has forced all employers to show some uh, leniency, I guess, in what time work is getting completed. Um, base it more off of production rather than how many hours you're sitting in the chair at the office, right? So um, looking at specifically with the pandemic, I mean, we're on the tail end of it, hopefully, right? We can all cross our fingers for that. But looking at what managers and leaders and organizations are doing, how can they help alleviate these challenges that parents are facing given the current climate of, you know, still helping their kids learn remotely or, um, you know, not sending their kids to daycare as they once did. Brian, I'll start with you. What would be your word to the wise for these organizations during this time period? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> that's a pretty big question. There's a lot of factors. It's nice to say just open up flexibility, be more reasonable, but a lot of organizations, including Third Stage, we we service other companies. And if you tell it, you can't tell your your clients just to expand there it becomes confusing so it's a matter of of understanding i think prioritization is is the key um you know if if you need client time during call it those nine to five hours with some some navigation around the, the child stuff you know have you know open up that calendar to maybe morning and evening internal meetings if, if that's an option for people i think a lot of times leadership historically has been sitting at nine to five saying you'll make things work for me i think as leaders we need to understand that the world's changing we need to bend our backs a little bit more too uh and and work with the world that's around us because we can't force everything uh, that's you know trying to punch through a brick wall is not going to work so i think we need to have that flexibility um uh, uh, allowing flexible work uh, time and vacations things like you know that's a, a growing one is the you know the the open vacation policy and and we're adopting that too where you don't you don't necessarily limit people and force them to take time off at the end of the year because that also constrains your ability to service clients so the flexibility comes in a number number of ranges you know hours days weeks um, when you're requiring people to to check in or clock in now if you're running a retail outlet um, and that's allison's background that's a little bit different you need people at certain times but then there's there's flexibility such as overlap hours where you can you can have you know multiple layers of people leave early come late and you know lunchtime at the, at the restaurants you know you you, you staff up so there, there's any number of ways to work around this change and change environment that we've got as well as the you know kids at home and hopefully getting back to school soon hopefully right <laughs> Allison what do you think you know, I think recognizing, I think flexibility is key, but recognizing that because your employees are working more around the clock, 
you might actually be getting more from them without being in person. And so um, the recognition of that goes so far with a workforce and letting them know like we are still achieving great things in the, if that's if that is in fact the case and find things that they are achieving. You know, I think that a lot of working parents feel like they're doing so much and they're still trying to um, produce at a high caliber for their employer while they're trying, they're, they are producing higher for their family. And so that recognition, um, if at any time is crucial and important at this time because people are just working so much harder. And so um, in a time of, you know, the world transforming, the workplace transforming, um, people are trying to figure things out and it's created a lot of uncertainty. And so um, if employers can not only be flexible, but, you know, have some touch points, like regular touch points with their teams to just say thank you or to give updates and say thank you, you know, um, it goes so far. And um, I think that um, on teams that I see performing really, really high um, and some of my clients that are just beating um, and exceeding records in this really hard time frame, they're doing it remotely and they get together every month and they say thank you and they celebrate together. And so um, in a world where a lot of that's not happening, they find really cool and creative ways to do that. So I would encourage more people to find those times, not just focus on work, but actually focus on um, the accomplishments and the people. Um, and I think that would that that really could help your culture and engagement in these times. Yeah, I completely agree. It's reinforcing what's working, right? I think, I think there's also been some employers who are hesitant to go remote until they were forced to and now they're seeing that production continues as it was or in some cases gets better because i mean to your point it the cutoff time isn't there anymore you're at home right it cuts the commute time it cuts um you know the different distractions that would be there if you were driving into the office um rather than closing your computer at five o'clock every day you're going until dinner time until you finish a project right so it's <clears throat> excuse me it's it's just kind of that shift in perspective and acknowledging that with with from a leadership standpoint is something that can keep that keep that running i absolutely agree so i mean beyond the pandemic you know again i keep saying i think we're almost out of it i really do but beyond this i mean i believe that the re the remote workforce aspect is probably going to stick i think that there's going to be teams that stay remote um or go into a hybrid model, right? Um, with that, when you look beyond just COVID, um, if you compare people who don't have kids, who don't have the commitments of going to pick up their kid from soccer or drop off at daycare, they can stay there until 9 p.m., no problem. Um, when you look at those two scenarios, what would you say to the working parent who is trying to compete for that promotion with someone who doesn't have those obligations. Brian, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, I, I don't think making a big deal about it is where they say, oh, I'm a parent, I gotta do, you know, that, that's, that's your job. What, what employees are looking for is your ability to handle a need period. Uh, I don't think this is a time when you're, when you're trying to reach a job is to bring it, oh, I'm a parent, I need to take this time, this time, you know, Employers understand that, and they they're obligated to work around that. So I wouldn't make a big deal of that. 
Um, the other consideration is that, you know, look, look at Allison's case and juggling four kids and a, a very strong career. I think parents in some ways are more capable uh, than a lot of pe people who are winging it on their own. Not to say that that's always the case, but there's a responsibility that comes with parenthood that sometimes you don't get until you're a parent. And I think if you're able to translate what you learn as a parent into the workplace, you're bringing an extra value. Absolutely. I mean, it's leadership, right? You're leading your kids. You're setting the example. That's it's arguably the biggest challenge is being a parent. <laughs> you learn a lot, right? And you bring that into the workforce for sure. So I, I want to wrap it up with this. Allison, you have four kids ranging from 11 to two. Um, what would you say to new parents that want to continue growing their career um, but are expecting or have young ones and are planning on having more um, and want to have it all? What would you tell them? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it kind of building on what type of um, Brian said that, you know, you you have this new ability to, to lead and to manage and to, um, you know, share what you your own knowledge with not only your family, but that translates into the working world as well. And so I think that um, you get a new skill set as a parent. And um, at times you might think that, you know, it's taking time away from one, one of your worlds or the other, but really they're adding because if you think about the workforce, you know, as, um, as a single individual or like a parent, I guess not necessarily single, but like, you know, not as a parent, you know what that world was like. And now you know what this new world is going to be like, and you can understand and relate and empathize with people in a whole new way because you're going to have the same experience. And if you're working your way through your career, the biggest tr like character trait I think that helps people succeed is if you can empathize and you can put yourself in that situation and you can understand what people are up against. And so you may be able to set more realistic timelines. You may be able to understand the trade-offs that people are going through. And so as a leader um, and as a parent, um, I think you have these new skills as you become a first-time parent and a second-time parent and a, a, a parent of multiples. Your skill sets continue to grow and you have the ability to just understand um, people in their situations. Now on the flip side, if you are a single person and you're not a parent and you're working through your, um, your career, you have to build those skill sets somehow, right? <laughs> so they have to be able to relate to other people, put themselves in situations. And so um, they're, they're gonna get it through another avenue. So, uh, you know, leadership is one of those things that you continually have to work on and it has to evolve and it has to evolve with your organization and with the changing times and the world. And so um, I do think that that's a perk that people don't see um, when they have children is that they're, they're gaining these new powers and skills and, um, and don't see, don't, don't let your mind trick you into the fact that that's going to take away from your career. Like don't trick yourself that way. Cause it's actually, I believe it works in the other direction. I completely agree. Awesome. Great, great insights. You guys, I appreciate you both jumping on Allison and Brian. Um, it's always good to hear from working parents who are in it, who are doing it and are doing a great job at it. So hats off to both of you as great parents, as great leaders. 
um, and, you know, great consultants. So with that, we will see you guys on another episode of Transformation Ground Control. But until next time, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Parisa. Bye. Thank you. Have a great day. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Feeling good, like I should. When in Durkle, walk around the neighborhood. Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Jack Kimberling here with Parisa Noble. Uh, just had a, a good conversation with uh, Brian and Allison from the Third Stage team about working parents. What was some of your uh, you know takeaways from from that discussion you had with them? Yeah, you know, this is one of my favorite topics because in my uh, last role when I was in corporate America, I was helping run the. Uh, it was called the Empowered Parents Network, which was the employee resource groups for working parents. And the biggest thing uh, for my time with that company was that it was a very structured organization. It was very badge in, badge out. The longer you're there, the better chance you have of getting promoted, you know, obviously based on production, but more so on hours. So it was an interesting culture for working parents. Um, but a lot of that played into the the service that was provided it was a nine to five role and brian made the point of you know some companies depending on their services that they provide they're able to be flexible no problem like third stage you're able to be flexible because you can work around the clock you have an international clientele you know maybe sometimes you're working in the evening sometimes you're working in the morning but you can kind of have that ambiguity whereas in this last role it was something that a lot of working parents struggled with and were unhappy with, but at the core of the the organization, it had to be that way for for those roles and for the company to operate like it operated. So I think that was an important note that Brian made uh, at the beginning of the conversation because it's so true. And as an employee of an organization like that, you need to recognize, you know, why is it the way that it is? Um, as far as, you know, do they allow you to work from home if you need to, do they allow you to come in late if you need to, or is it something that's a very structured, you know, the hours are the hours. So I thought that was interesting, but with that said, I think it always comes back to the biggest thing working parents need in order to be productive members of an organization is flexibility. And it, I think that was pushed we were pushed into that zone of being flexible during the pandemic because we had no option <laughs> i mean schools closed parents had to you know play teacher and play you know their regular role at um their job so maybe it kind of opened up the conversation a little bit more for some organizations that weren't as open to it um since they saw that productivity hopefully didn't dip it probably increased so it was interesting to see that that conversation play out. And I think one big thing that Allison said, too, that stood out was she was in a similar situation as well. And her 
previous role in a previous organization is it was very hard to to manage having four kids and being on that hourly, you know, you have to be in at this time to this time, little flexibility, et cetera. So she changed it. And I think that's the biggest thing is a lot of times people feel stuck and obligated to stay in their situation because they have a good job or they have a good title. They have awesome compensation. They don't want to walk away from it. But at what cost um, does that come? And when it's at the cost of kind of missing your kids growing up or having to work those late hours, you have to ask yourself, is that worth it? So if it's not, it's finding an organization that is more in alignment with what you want and what you need for your life and making sure that you take ownership of what your day-to-day looks like rather than giving that those reins to an employer. So that was my takeaway from the conversation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, those are interesting takeaways. And I agree with that too. It's almost like, uh, you know, the pandemic, I think maybe force people or, or nudge people into thinking about their priorities and, you know, what, what kind of uh, work-life balance they're looking for and what, what does or doesn't align with, with their, their interest in their, their life situation. So I think it's a, it's a good point. Right. And I mean, how serious is a pandemic, right. To really give you a reality check. So I do think, you know, I think across the board, both on the employee side and on the employer side, you're going to see this uh, remote workforce stick to an extent, whether it's a hybrid or, just managers adopting a more flexible uh, work schedule and working with their employees a little bit more than maybe they did a year ago. Um, I think those things are going to stick, but we'll find out. We'll see. I mean, you have you have two boys, 14 and 8, right? 14 and so, 11. Gosh, I keep going to 8, huh? <laughs> What's do. it about 8? I, don't I need know. to write it down. 14 <laughs> and 11. So, I mean, tell me about your juggle, right? We talked a lot about juggling our kids and our um, our work with Brian and Allison. I'm curious what you're up against leading a consulting company and also leading your family. Sure. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, work-life balance is something I've always struggled with, to be candid. It, it's something that I, I tend to, even when I didn't have kids or a family, it still was an area that I was, was struggling with. Um, but as far as how to, you know, how to navigate it, I mean, I, I think first of all, you know, to your point, you have to, you know, you have to be in the right environment. I mean, that that's, you know, part of the environment we've created at third stage is very flexible. I mean, we, we tend to gravitate toward people and team members who also seem to gravitate towards us because we, we look for people that um, are, you know, value flexibility and can handle the flexibility. Some people need a ton of structure and they want the eight to five super defined type jobs, but that's, that's not who, who we are um, as an organization and even in the consulting industry. So, you know, having that flexibility is important. I, I value flexibility. Um, and, you know, with, with kids, you know, one thing I found is, is trying to, I, I, my strategy has been to sort of involve them in the business at times or teach them about what, what we do and how we do things. And, you know, they've, they've been in, you know, YouTube videos I've done, I've, I've tried to involve them in stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it's my way of, you know, in some ways the stubborn side of me saying, I'm not going to work less, but I'm going to involve them more and teach them as I can. And part of that is just because, you know, growing up, my, my parents were super young when I was born, they were still in high school. So I, I, uh, grew up with my parents both working really hard and I just saw my dad especially how hard he worked and and he had to do it out of necessity but it just 
instilled a really deep work ethic in me that, um, you know, I want to pass on to my kids. I don't want my kids just to take anything for granted. And I want them to see that, you know, just because I'm a CEO of a company doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean that it just sort of happens. It, it means there's a lot of hard work that goes into that. So for me, I find, you know, it's rewarding in that way. But, you know, I do, just to be candid, I do struggle with, you know, when do I, when do I stop working? When do I turn it off and say, hey, I'm spending more time uh, with the family? Fortunately, I have a wife who's very good at keeping me balanced. Uh, if I didn't have that, I probably would struggle even more than I do. So uh, definitely easier said than done. I mean, it's a, it's a tough balancing act for, as it is for a lot of, a lot of parents. It is for sure. And it's, it's interesting, the double-edged sword that flexibility can play also, because I imagine a lot of people can relate on working remotely. It's, you know, you have to set the time where you close your laptop. Whereas if you're in the office, you leave the office at five, five thirty, maybe six, right? But you can keep working at the kitchen counter <laughs> if you wanted to, right? And when you have a lot to do or you're motivated and, you know, I find that having kids brings you more motivation because it's almost like your why has grown exponentially because, like you said, you want to set the example. You want to teach them to work hard and, and kind of do the things that you're doing as well. So that takes me to my next point is Brian mentioned that if you're a parent, you oftentimes probably have some skills that uh, non-parents or, sing I don't know, people who don't have kids don't have or maybe haven't experienced in the same capacity like time management or even leading like leading little toddlers or or preteens is a challenge yeah <laughs> and it translates to how you lead your team at work yeah it definitely does i mean it it uh i that's one thing i can say is that pre uh pre having kids and and post having kids i feel like i've learned a lot you know, in, in, in those situations, um, you know, not just in terms of how to lead, but also, you know, how to deal with difficult clients, you know, demanding clients in the consulting space or whatever the case may be. Not that you treat team members or clients like kids, but there's, there is a art to it that you kind of have to, or a psychology to it, I guess you would say, where, you know, you, a lot of what I've learned about parenting and decision-making and instilling decision-making and consequences and things like that with kids you know, you can apply it obviously on a different, more adult, mature le level with uh, people you're leading and certainly with uh, your clients or your customers if, if you're in a different industry. And, and just in terms of understanding, you know, you, you deal with, I'm sure your kid, your son right now is at an age where I imagine there's still some temper tantrums happening every so often. And just knowing how to navigate something so raw and dramatic at that moment teaches you a lot about how to deal with crises or difficult situations in business. Now, obviously it's not usually in most cases, it's not people throwing ten temper tantrums, but <laughs> it could be, um, but it's, it's a different, but it's a, it's a transferable skill set for sure in terms of leading and providing customer service and all that stuff. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's definitely, it's a juggling act. It's not easy to be a working parent. It's arguably one of the harder things that you'll do, but uh, you know, Allison said it best. You can have it all. I mean, you can have your family. You can have your career. Um, it's really just how you des design your life and, you know, what company you choose to work with, where you choose to hang your hat and uh, making sure that kind of all aspects of your life are working together synergistically. And if one component of that is off, change it because life is too short. I mean, you don't want to miss, uh, you know, watching your kids grow up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, 
it's interesting because, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't admit it out loud, but when we, when we interview potential team members and we're looking for, you know, who's going to be a good fit with the team, we, you know, I tend to be drawn to people that are, that are parents, you know, and not to sound at all sexist, but especially working moms. I mean, there's something about working moms that, um, you know, they really value the flexibility. They, they usually are able to, um, uh, navigate ambiguity better. You know, they, they can, they can sort of live with the ambiguity of consulting a, a little bit better. So there's, um, you know, the broad stereotype I'm, I'm making here, but you know, that is something that I've found that in recent years I've looked for, and it, it really helps build a, a stronger culture too. you know, people yeah. that are understanding and have that flexibility and all that empathy and everything that goes along with being a, being a parent. Yeah, absolutely. I wish you could broadcast that to the whole world and all the executives <laughs> that yeah. are running these Fortune 500 companies also, because I mean, working moms deal with uh, kind of the grit of it, you know, because you're, you're dealing with playing mom and having to deal with the mom guilt of not being there for, you know, the moments or whatever. But at the same time, you don't want to take a step back or the back seat, if you will, uh, when you're kind of competing for that promotion or doing things to advance your career. So hats off to you for saying that, because that's, you know, one of the biggest uh, challenges that that new moms specific specifically are facing um, in the workforce is, you know, how can I continue with my career while also being a good mom, you know? Yeah. And same thing for dads. Dads experience it too. It's the whole overarching concept of being a working parent. It it comes with its challenges, but it comes with its fulfillment as well. Absolutely. That's why why we do it, right? That's why we do it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, thanks for, for facilitating that interview. That was a great discussion. And uh, thanks for being here again on another great show. Um, if this happens to be the last episode before your maternity leave, uh, good luck. And and hope all goes well with your your second foray into motherhood. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I look forward to coming back uh, full throttle. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Way to tie in the third stage branding. I like it. <laughs> and if, if by chance, uh, if by chance we get one more episode in, then great. We'll see you next week. Otherwise, we'll, we'll see you here in a few weeks. Sounds and, great. Appreciate and thanks, it. Eric. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, just a reminder to subscribe to us on YouTube and or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to follow us, too, on LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter and Facebook. You know, we, we put out good content there every day. Uh, literally every day we're putting out multiple times a day content and articles and videos and podcasts like this. So be sure to subscribe to Third Stage uh, on any of those platforms. So that being said, I hope you all have a great day and we will see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.